This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. The U.S. Supreme Court is considering a Colorado case where jurors say another juror made racist remarks during deliberations. Typically, jury deliberations are supposed to be secret, but the defendant, who was convicted of attempted sexual assault, says his right to an impartial jury was violated. Sherry Kolb is a professor at Cornell Law School. She recently wrote a piece in the legal publication Verdict about the case. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Briefly, what are the facts of Peña Rodriguez v. Colorado? Well, basically, there was this sexual assault trial, and in the course of the trial, according to jurors who later discussed it, um, one juror in particular said very racist things about the defendant and also about uh, an alibi witness for the defendant. So, for example, the, the quotes were, the defendant did it because he's Mexican, and Mexican men take whatever they want. Uh, the defendant was guilty because in this person's experience as an ex-law enforcement officer, Mexican men had a bravado that caused them to believe they could do whatever they wanted with women. And, and there were other quotes, other similar quotes. And then the alibi witness, um, the, the particular juror said, the alibi witness was not credible because, among other things, he was an illegal. And, in fact, the witness had testified during trial that he was a legal resident of the United States. So... These were very racist comments that the juror made um, during the course of the trial. Um, and, but under a rule that, is, that most states have and the federal government has as well, and Colorado has this rule too, you cannot challenge a verdict based on jury testimony, juror testimony about things that happened in the jury room. And several Colorado courts said that those statements couldn't be used to change the verdict. What rights did the defendant's attorneys say are being challenged here? Well, the defendant's attorneys say that that this violates the Sixth Amendment right to an impartial jury. So people have a right to an impartial jury, and that's true in criminal cases as well as civil cases. And that the argument is that if there's no possibility of overturning this verdict given what was happening in the jury room, that that would violate the interests of the defendant in having an impartial jury decide his case. In most federal and state cases... Under the uh, Sixth Amendment. Under the Sixth Amendment. In most federal and state cases, jurors can't share what happened uh, during deliberation. So how did these statements find their way to the defendant? Well, I'm not sure exactly what happened in this case, but I think that some jurors may have come forward and indicated that this happened, that they were very disturbed by it, and that they, uh, that they were prepared to talk about it if they were permitted to do so. And jurors, in fact, are often you know, free to come forward and say things happened. It's just that what this rule prohibits is having them testify in support of overturning the verdict. So is the rule about juror secrecy, of course, to keep them safe as well as, you know, so the deliberations they have in private are, are, are not made public? Is that the, the reason this rule is such a bedrock of, of the judicial law? Um, well, the rule is, it is to protect them from harassment, and it's also intended to give them the freedom to deliberate 
fully and not be self-conscious about what they say, anticipating the possibility that something they say might be quoted in testimony later. So that's the point of, of the rule, is, is to give them the opportunity to deliberate fully and freely. And we, we are mentioning that you're joining us from, from Cornell, and there is an app that we're using to do that. So there is a bit of a delay. Uh, that's why there's pauses between your answers. Uh, the, the premise of secret deliberations has been challenged in other court cases that came before the Supreme Court, like 1987 uh, case Tanner v. U.S. Uh, what happened in that case? That case was pretty egregious. What happened was that a person was on trial, and during the course of the trial, it turned out that a bunch of jurors were drinking a lot. One, one juror described it as basically a party, and people were using illicit drugs, and one juror was selling a considerable quantity of marijuana to another juror. So jurors came forward and actually contacted the defense attorney in that case and said, you know, you might want to know this because this is pretty egregious. And the Supreme Court said that because of this rule that you do not have jurors testifying uh, about what happened during deliberations, none of that information about the drunken jurors could be used to overturn the verdict. So it seems to me the difference here is is race, that there is a pretty high bar to not bringing these deliberations in the jury room into a case. But this, this case seems different. Yes, it's because it, it is because it's race. And I think that if, if the court decides that the Sixth Amendment requires that um, we be able to go behind this verdict in this case and have jurors testify, it will be because it's a matter of race rather than some other thing that's considered less toxic. And, you know, racial bias is considered extremely highly toxic in our constitutional system. The Supreme Court heard the case recently but won't issue a verdict until June. What was the nature of the justices' questions? Well, there were several justices, um, Justice Alito as well as Chief Justice Roberts, who both pointed out that if the point of the Sixth Amendment right to an impartial jury is fairness to the defendant, then it really shouldn't matter whether the grounds for the juror bias is racial or something else. And uh, I think it was Justice Alito who gave us an example. What if a juror were to flip a coin and say, I'm going to find for the defendant if it's heads and for, the, and for the government if it's tails? That would certainly be a very, that would be a very problematic um, thing to happen during the jury deliberations, and yet it doesn't involve anything about racial bias. So several of the justices thought that racial bias should not make the difference. That the question is, is are we going to have this rule of jury secrecy or not? And if we have it, then except with limited exceptions, we're not going to be able to go behind the verdict. We're going to have to actually have you pick up your phone um, there. Other it, questions. Oh, oh, are you there? Yep, pick up the phone and uh, oh, see if okay. that, that works. Yeah. Hi.
There we go. And we'll just cut that one out. Well, apologize for that that sound quality. Let's uh, continue. Uh, okay. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Sherry Kolb, a professor at Cornell Law School, who wrote a piece in the legal publication Verdict about Pena Rodriguez v. Colorado, about whether evidence of racial bias during jury deliberations should eclipse jury secrecy rules. Uh Colorado Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman has weighed in on the case saying the evidence was overwhelming against Peña Rodriguez and that the attorney should have picked up on this bias during jury selection. Couldn't that have been a way to keep this particular juror off the uh, jury in the first place? Um, Well, that's one possible way to, if you can detect that a juror is biased ahead of time, then you can, during voir dire, you can keep the person off the jury. But there's no guarantee that uh, that that the lawyer will be able to pick up on that, and so sometimes people say, you know, when they're asked questions, they sound like they're going to be impartial, and then when they get into the jury room, they say things that reveal that they're really not impartial, and that, and at least according to the defendant, that's what happened in this case. And there was another case that the Supreme Court looked at where a jury did just that, lied, and and then was chosen for the jury, and then deliberated differently. Yes, exactly, and that that in that case. Um, a woman had said that she could be impartial, but then during the course of deliberation, she said something that suggested that she would have a hard time awarding damages for the plaintiff um, because of, of something that had happened to a relative of hers. So it's not always possible to detect these things outside of the actual jury deliberations. What are the ramifications from this case? Could the idea of secret jury deliberations be reexamined or, or even changed? Um, it's possible. I, I suspect, though, that if the court decides that it, um, that in this case uh, the jury sh- should the jurors should be able to testify about what happened, that it'll limit it'll try to limit that to race and other similar characteristics that 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 kind of bias, and that'll probably leave in place the general rule of jury secrecy, and in other sorts of cases where you have pretty egregious, but not racially or otherwise um, invidiously based bias. And final question briefly, uh, who are some of the proponents of this? Who would, who would like to see this, this, this changed? Well, I, I think that um, criminal defendants and probably people generally who are unhappy with the way verdicts come out would want to be able to see this change but in particular uh, criminal defendants because they would they would be in the position to want to reverse a verdict that they feel was a result of juror bias um, and and potentially prevail as a result of that sherry thanks so much for joining us oh you're very welcome Sherry Kolb is a professor at Cornell Law School she recently wrote a piece in the legal publication verdict about Peña Rodriguez v Colorado Just ahead, how a Boulder scientist is working to predict large solar storms. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. When Hurricane Matthew battered the eastern seaboard earlier this month, accurate weather forecasts likely saved many lives. But could scientists issue the same kind of warnings for incoming solar storms? This isn't some sci-fi threat. According to the White House, space weather, quote, can disrupt the backbone of this country's economic vitality and national security. In fact, they estimate that a large space storm could cost the U.S. 20 times more than Hurricane Katrina. Scientists in Boulder have developed a new way to predict these storms. Howard Singer is the chief scientist for the Space Weather Prediction Center in Boulder. I talked with him just the other day. 
Let's just clarify space weather. I mean, there aren't clouds or wind in space. What are we talking about here? So space weather is uh, generated on the sun. There are lots of different things that happen from the sun that, that we don't easily see by just looking at that big yellow ball in the sky. And some of these things are like solar flares, which disrupt radio communications, large ejections of matter from the sun called coronal mass ejections that travel to Earth and create large geomagnetic storms. And so these are the sorts of effects that we have from the sun that influence the Earth and its technologies. And what are some of the, uh, the concerns when these storms are headed towards Earth? Well, it's a big concern right now. One of the things that has gotten a lot of attention is the potential effects on the power grid. Being so dependent on electricity and all of the things that come from electricity, like even things like powering our pumps that give us water. So it's not just the electricity that you plug into the wall and you get electricity that could be out, but you may not get water because there aren't any pumps running. So electrical systems are of a huge concern and the impact of solar events on the grid are something that we would like to be able to predict better in order to protect society. Have these kind of storms hit the Earth in the past? Yes, that's a great question. One of the first events was in 1859, the Carrington event, which was uh, observed by Carrington, and it's got his name associated with it. And he observed the first visible solar flare. And the impact on Earth from that was effects on things like telegraph systems, because we didn't have much technology at that time. There were telegraph systems, for example, in where they actually took the batteries offline and ran the telegraphs on the currents generated by space weather. But if we jump ahead to 1989, at that time, Hydro-Quebec in Canada was knocked out by a large solar event. And that knocked out power to about 6 million people or so for maybe nine hours. It also reached down to the U.S. and affected transformers in the United States. So that's another good example, I think, of the impact that a solar storm can have on the Earth. And you mentioned that 1859 storm that hit Earth. Uh, We found out that it also brought incredible auroras to Colorado, uh, and they were so bright that gold miners got up and started cooking breakfast at 1 a.m. in the morning. Is that normal for these large space weather events if they were to hit Earth? They'd be beautiful, but also potentially very damaging to to our systems. They would be beautiful, but as you say, they would be damaging. Typically, the aurora are seen in the northern latitudes, like northern Canada. Sometimes you get a large event and it comes down over the northern U.S. But in these really extreme events, the aurora are seen all the way down to places like Cuba. This is another aspect of space weather is that it's not just a localized effect like a hurricane hitting the east coast of the United States, but it can affect the entire globe. In 2012, I've read there was a situation where charged matter erupted from the sun and just barely missed the Earth. If it had hit us, uh, what might have happened? Could you pinpoint exactly where this would have gone and, and what damage would have occurred? This is a really interesting event for several reasons. Uh, one is we've had a pretty minor solar cycle. And so people have thought that, well, with a minor solar cycle, maybe you won't expect a huge storm. But what the sun showed us is that even during a small solar cycle, you can have a big solar event. The other interesting thing about this is is that rather than being aimed at Earth, it was aimed at a satellite that was 
uh, in orbit, in similar orbit to Earth's orbit, but ahead of Earth in its orbit. So it hit that satellite, which made measurements, saw the magnitude and intensity of this event that, if it had hit Earth, would have created huge problems for us. Could you give us kind of a, a real-world example? Would it be like a Category 5 hurricane or maybe an earthquake that hits 10 on the Richter scale? Is that the damage that, that you would forecast? Well, that's, that's a great question because actually in space weather, we have what we call the space weather scales. Huh. And they're similar to the scales like the Richter scale that everybody knows about for earthquakes and similar scales that are used for telling us about the intensity of a hurricane. With the space weather scales, one of the scales we have is for geomagnetic storms. And that scale goes from being a rather minor event that has certain consequences on us, but not too severe, all the way up to G5, which is an extreme event. And this would be a a large event. Now, would an accurate prediction uh, allow us to avoid this kind of damage? That's exactly what we do at the Space Weather Prediction Center, is that we take all the information we have, we take observations from satellites and from ground-based systems of the sun, we take models, and that's one of the things that, that we've just put into place now as a new model. We use these models to predict what is going to happen in the near term as best we can, and to say what's going to happen at places where we don't have observations. And so... At the Space Weather Prediction Center, which is part of NOAA, it's our job to give that information to customers. And we have thousands of customers around in the U.S. and around the world who are watching what we're saying about the conditions that we're either experiencing or expect to, to experience so that they can do something to mitigate those effects on their systems. And what would some of those things be? How would they mitigate this? Well, to take, for example, astronauts in the space station, if we observe, in this case, a very large solar energetic particle event, they can move to parts of the space station which are more shielded than other parts. Another example would be the power grids. And the power grids can take advantage of our information, and they might do things like delay maintenance on parts of their system. The new model that we have gives a pretty accurate prediction of what is going to happen and what's going to impact the Earth, but only with about maybe 15 to 45 minutes warning. But even with that short warning, the power companies and the power grid operators are able to monitor more closely some of their equipment to be able to stop sharing power with other parts of the grid that may impact their operations. So there are a number of things that they can do, both in the long term and in the short term. Kind of like unplugging a computer during a thunderstorm. Exactly. Howard, you mentioned this new model uh, that your agency has developed for making uh, space weather forecasts. What can you do now that you couldn't do before? The key thing that we can do now is that we can provide some regional information about where largest geomagnetic disturbances are going to be on Earth that could affect various power grids, for example. Before that, what it was like doing is perhaps like a weather forecaster having one number to say, well, it may rain somewhere on Earth sometime today. But now we're able to do something better. We're able to say something might happen in the northeast U.S., or maybe in the northwest U.S., or maybe just north of our border. And we're able to give that regional information. And this model is accessible to the public, correct? That's right. 
since the beginning of October, that model and several of its products have been available to our forecasters to begin to use at the Space Weather Prediction Center. Now we have those same products available to uh, the public and to our customers on the web. So if you go to Space Weather Prediction Center, just Google that or look at swpc.noaa.gov, down near the bottom you'll see a list of test products, and anyone can click on them and see the results. And we'll post a link uh, to that on our website. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Howard Singer leads the Space Weather Prediction Center at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in Boulder. He explained his agency's new and vastly improved model for forecasting solar storms. Find links and photos at cprnews.org. Up next, we continue our look into the depths of space. A regular contributor, Doug Duncan, joins us to talk asteroids, comets, and space probes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A spacecraft built in Colorado is on its way to take a bite out of an asteroid. The OSIRIS-REx, which launched last month, will pull alongside the speeding near-Earth object, grab a small piece of it, and return the sample to Earth. Doug Duncan is director of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder, and he joins us monthly to talk about space science. Hello, Nathan. Hi. The mission to catch an asteroid sounds especially ambitious today in light of news that the Schiaparelli lander crashed on Mars. Uh, That's a European mission. What's the latest news? Well, for Schiaparelli there. I love that. It's it's not too great. Uh, This was a combined mission with an orbiter and a lander. So the orbiter did just fine. It's safely in orbit around Mars, and it will have a very interesting mission of kind of sniffing the gas of the Martian atmosphere to see if there might be any uh, detection of methane. Methane, listeners may know, it comes from cows, comes from microorganisms, comes from some natural sources, but we would love to know if there was any traces of a gas like that in the Martian atmosphere. So the main part of the mission succeeded, um, but the lander didn't land very softly. And that puts into perspective the challenges of the OSIRIS-REx mission, uh, you know, which launched last month. The spacecraft was built in Littleton by Lockheed Martin and launched on an Atlas V rocket by Centennial's United Launch Alliance. In two and a half years, it will reach the asteroid Bennu. What does it take to catch up with an asteroid hurtling through space? Well, so it's kind of paradoxical. It's hard enough to catch up with the asteroid. Uh, because, of course, it's going really, really fast, right. and, and we have to go from the Earth out there and rendezvous with it and slow down. So, you know, you're going thousands of miles an hour, but you have to slow and pull alongside and approach the asteroid. But the funny thing is, I would say equally hard is the last little bit, because the asteroid has such weak gravity that you can't just land on it. I mean, listeners will remember that we talked about um, the the mission recently to Rosetta, and they had their little feli lander come down, and it landed, but because it wasn't able to grab on, it bounced, and it bounced, and they found it uh, upside down in a crack halfway on the other side of the asteroid. So the gravity is so weak that landing, as we're used to, really is a challenge. Maybe it's not possible. 
And so the OSIRIS-REx mission really is not going to land and scoop up rocks. Actually, if you landed, if you were standing there and you put a shovel down into the surface, you would just bounce up. Oh. Uh, equal and opposite reaction okay. kind of a thing. Right. And, and you'd probably never come down. So the plan is to get very, very close to the surface of the asteroid, shoot compressed gas, and kick up rocks and dust and grab them, kind of like a cosmic vacuum cleaner ah. uh, to get the rocks. And it seems like, so what is the timeline of this? When will this machine so it, reach Yeah, the it asteroid? actually takes a couple of years to, to go out and rendezvous. And then, uh, you know, it's going to both collect samples and, and images. And then it'll take a couple of years to return the sample. So it's, it's a pretty tricky mission. You know, what we started by talking about the Mars mission, which half succeeded the European Mars mission. That's kind of an interesting number because half of all of the missions to Mars, half of them have failed. You'd almost think the Martians are a little shy up there, right? <laughs> and, they, and they don't want us to send back pictures or data. Um, we are getting better as time goes on, but it's a challenge to land on Mars also, uh, kind of for a different reason. Mm -hmm. There the gravity is weaker than Earth, but it's pretty strong, and you're coming into the Martian atmosphere at thousands of miles an hour. Imagine like the space shuttle coming into the atmosphere. Um, on the Earth, if you're a capsule, you know, I'm old enough to remember our, our original astronauts would be in capsules with parachutes. Yeah. So parachute, that's a pretty sensible, easy way to land. Slows things down. Uh, yeah. As long as there's enough air to fill your parachute. And the atmosphere on Mars, the surface of Mars, is a little thinner than the top of Mount Everest. So I can assure people, actually, as it happens, I've been to Everest Base Camp, and that's only two-thirds of the way up, and there was not much air there. And I can assure people if you jumped off Mount Everest with an ordinary parachute, you wouldn't collect enough air to slow you down. So how do you compensate for that on Mars? Well, I, I did a calculation, and if you just wanted a parachute, you or I parachuting on Mars would need a parachute the size of a football field. A football field. To slow down. And that isn't very practical. So the European mission was combining a parachute and retro rockets. So the parachute slows it down initially, and then the retro rockets were supposed to fire and help it land. If you remember our Curiosity rover and upcoming, our Mars 2020 rover that we're working on now, uh, that had huge retro rockets and parachute and a, a crazy sky crane uh, arrangement so that the retro rockets were too big to be on the lander itself. So the lander was held by a clamshell. The retro rockets fired. They stopped about 60 feet above the surface, and the, and the rover was lowered down on cables. So landing on Mars is a challenge. Landing on an asteroid is a challenge. Well, getting back to the asteroid, Bennu, why Bennu? There are millions of identified asteroids in our solar system. Why this There one? are. And um, there's kind of an easy misconception that people have. I think a lot of our listeners have probably been, I hope, to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science or to my own Fisk Planetarium and seen a meteorite. 
And uh, I have a favorite pet rock. It's my meteorite, which I brought in today, and I handed it to you. I'll I'll do that now. Oh, it is heavy. It is a heavy, heavy object. Right. And that's because it's a piece of iron and nickel. So it's really dense and heavy. And most meteorites in displays are just like this. But out in space, uh, you know, think about how a piece of metal can be. In the Earth, where does metal come from? The Earth has has a metal core. And what happened when the Earth was formed was it heated up, metal melted, and you got a core. You can't get pure metal without being the core of a planet, as far as we know. So, in fact, there have been asteroids out there, big, developed metal cores that crash into each other, and the pieces come to Earth and make it into museums. But that's because they're strong. Much of the stuff out there is stone. It's much weaker, and it's not processed. We would like to get our hands on the original stuff that the solar system formed from before the Earth formed, before the asteroids formed and processed material. So the more primitive, older material, unprocessed, I guess I should say, out in Bennu is especially valuable and it doesn't come to the Earth so so easily. So if we can get our hands on the primordial stuff that the planets formed from, we'd, we'd love to have that. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. Astronomer Doug Duncan is here. He's director of Boulder's Fisk Planetarium. We're talking about the Colorado-built OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, which is on its way to grab a piece of an asteroid and bring it back to Earth. I want to talk about the name, OSIRIS-REx. It is, it is a <laughs> mouthful when you actually read it all out. Uh, it stands for Origins, Spectral Interpretation, Resource Identification, Security, and Regolith Explorer. Yes. Yeah, say that at 10 times um, fast. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, regolith, probably the hardest of those words, yeah. just means the surface rocks, surface material. So when you uh, kick in your garden, I guess you're in the regolith. The regolith. What about the word security? How does that fit into this mission? Well, it is interesting that uh, asteroids uh, and meteorites and comets um, impact the Earth. And there's a nice crater in Arizona that a lot of people know about, meteor yeah. crater. Um, the good news for Earthlings is that the bigger the asteroid, the rarer by a lot. So the Earth actually does get hit by lots of things. One of my colleagues was out last night, and maybe some of our listeners, do you say last night or early this morning, and a giant meteor blazed through the mm-hmm. Colorado sky. Well, a 10 years ago, one the size of a potato made it to the ground and birthed. And 10,000 years ago, one the size of this studio made a big crater in Arizona. So you might worry, and and of course, 65 million years ago, one killed off the dinosaurs. So we do get hit by things. It's important to astronomers to understand what's out there that could be a security threat. But the good news, as I started to say, is that the bigger the asteroid, the rarer. So for everyone that's one mile across, there's 10 or 20 or 100 that are a tenth of a mile across. So the the small ones are numerous, but they're not going to be catastrophic. And, and that's the kind of thing we're studying. The big ones that are most dangerous, we think we can keep tabs on with telescopes. So how big was the one that hit in Arizona in terms of size? You know, a good rule of thumb is that the hole, the crater, is maybe 10 times the size of the impactor. So I, that's why I say it was probably about the size of this uh, studio. Okay. Which is about, let's see. Oh, I'm see. sorry. Yeah, I, I, wanna, I'm thinking you know. <laughs> of the Bridges Center. I'm th- so the size of the Colorado Public Radio building, uh-huh. something that big hit Arizona uh, 10,000 years ago, I think it was. 
and that's a huge building. It's a three-story building. It's, it's yeah. a massive piece. So of these kinds of asteroids are out there. But as I say, the bigger they are, the rarer. And it's astronomers' job. Keep tabs. But there's a list of potential threats. These, these asteroids are, are, are out there that could potentially hit Earth. And the odds of them hitting us are very, very low. You know, if, if I told you there's every 65 million years something big enough to kill us off comes, I hope you wouldn't stay up late at night worrying listeners because 60 million years is a long time and there are a lot of things that are more dangerous. So I do not worry about asteroid impacts. And Bennu has a 1 in 2,700 chance of colliding with Earth. Yes. I mean, we're pretty good at doing calculations of orbits. In fact, it's quite fun. Back at Colorado, you know, we have this educational software that I've mentioned before, and you can Google it, FET, P-H-E-T, dot Colorado, dot E-D-U, and you yeah. can make your own solar system. And if you put in several objects in it, you can't make it stable. They do get tossed around. So you can't completely predict orbits millions of years into the future because Jupiter will toss asteroids around and change their orbits. But we can predict hundreds of years in the future. So I'm not worrying. Uh, you mentioned that the, one of the missions of OSIRIS-REx is to collect that space dust on the asteroid. But that's awesome. Right. But what's not awesome is this space dust on the International Space Station. Explain why that is not so awesome. Well, <laughs> the, the, the space dust that represents the origin of the solar system is valuable. But unfortunately, the space dust inside the International Space Station, not so exotic. <laughs> it's, you know, this is a little gross. But when, the, when the, the dry skin comes off your hand, you know, normally that just goes behind the couch or on the floor or something like that. But up in space, every little piece of dust floats. It's, it's not going to come down. It may stick to something. But even though they're very, very clean up on the International Space Station, it's been there for years and years, and it accumulates dust. And so it would be pretty handy to have a way of vacuuming the dust in, uh, in the space station. With all due respect to Mr. Dyson, you know, a big high-tech Dyson vacuum isn't going to cut it up there in space. And that's why Colorado State has come to the rescue with a space vacuum. Yes. And it's very, very compact. Okay. It's maybe the size of a cigarette pack or a big cell phone or something like that. And, and they it, wear that on, on their body? Yes, you can. Um, and so as it, it just very slowly collects the dust. It's pretty high tech how it works. It involves heating to different temperatures and the way air flows when the temperature changes. But little by little, it kind of... Uh, attracts more than vacuums the dust. And we'll see how effective it is up there on the space station. I actually don't know how serious a problem the astronauts say it is. If it was really serious, we would have heard. Uh -huh. But, you know, cleanliness is, is very good up there. Is it up there already or is it on a, on a, on a way up there? Or? Actually, I'm sorry, but I don't know okay. if it's gone up there yet. Well, we'll check on that and, and get back to you. Sounds fair. Doug, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Dr. Doug Duncan is an astronomer and director of Boulder's Fisk Planetarium. He joins us monthly to talk about space science. Coming up, how a Colorado man used sketches from the 1800s to document the state's changing geography. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Do you ever imagine what Colorado looked like before millions of people moved here? A new website lets you compare what parts of the state looked like in the 1870s with what it looked like today. Geographer Tom Huber searched out the locations where artists sketched landscapes in 1873 for the Hayden Geological Survey. His photos and the drawings are placed side by side online at Hayden's Landscapes Revisited. Huber teaches at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Tom, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Briefly explain what the Hayden Survey was. Okay, back in the 19th century, um, vast stretches of the United States were being added in the West, but most people didn't know what was there, what we had, what, what we could find. Um, Lewis and Clark was basically the first expedition to the West. And in Colorado, we had Zebulon Pike in 1806. And then uh, Stephen Long in 1820, uh, John Fremont in uh, the 1840s and 1850s. But basically, they were just riding through and taking notes and trying to find passages for railroads. But they decided, especially after the Civil War, to study the West in a much more detailed way. Uh, The the very first thing that Hayden did was look at Yellowstone, the Yellowstone area in 1871 and 72. And the work he did there, uh, in addition to what Thomas Moran, the the artist, did, actually got the the National Park created in 1872. It It was pretty amazing. Well, after... The Yellowstone adventure, Hayden decided that Colorado was the next place. And all of there were four other or four surveys in total. Hayden was one of the surveys. Mm-hmm. John Wesley Powell of Colorado River fame was another survey. He did mostly Utah. Clarence King was a third survey. He worked in California with Whitney, but also was doing a survey along the 40th parallel for railroad use. And then there was George Wheeler, who was a military man, a lieutenant in the Army, who was mapping uh, the West mostly because of the Indian Wars. So Hayden decided Colorado was the place, and he convinced Congress for four years in a row to fund his work. And what he did is several different things. He did the geology uh, of the area. He mapped Colorado very precisely, unlike it had been mapped before. Mm-hmm. And he he was really good at collecting other really smart people. Uh, that was probably his, his best thing that he could do. And he brought in paleontologists, artists, photographers, cartographers, geographers, geologists, and and created this mass of people that every summer would go out to different areas and collect data and do mapping. So, and they sketched these these places. Photos seem like a more accurate method of recording the landscape. Why use artists? Photos are better. But you have to remember what photos were like back in the 1870s. Glass plates. Um Egg albumen for the emulsion that you put the silver halide on. Uh, William Henry Jackson was actually part of the Hayden survey and did phenomenal photography. But Jackson, when he did that, had to take 
600 pounds of equipment. It just wasn't effective. On, on, wasn't the, backs of, on the backs of mules. Yeah. Because every morning he had to take these heavy glass plates, mix the silver halide with the egg albumin, spread them evenly on the plates, and doing this all in the dark, of course. Then he had to store them and then get them to the top of the mountain or wherever he was going to take the photo, take the photo really quickly, put it back in, in the case. He had to develop it right away because the egg albumin would, of course, rot. So he had to get the, the it Just was the, really hard to do photographs. And so sketches, and these sketches are accurate to it, to a point. You're, Some of them are extremely accurate. Some of them are not. Oh, and that's an interesting point. I want to talk about uh, the, the the Colorado landscape around Colorado Springs in the online uh, uh, display of your photo along with their drawings. There are differences that are shown. Of course, it's right. very different today, but there are other reasons as well. Well, um, the, the guy who did that, uh, William Henry Holmes, was a, a Renaissance man. He was a geologist. He was an archaeologist. He was a he was an artist. And he sat on top of Pulpit Rock. If you've ever been to Colorado Springs, driving down Highway I-25, you can see Pulpit Rock. He sat there and did the sketch. And uh, at the time, the railroad had just been put in from Denver to Colorado Springs. General Palmer had had done the railroad. Mm -hmm. The railroad doesn't show up on on, on the drawing. Why not? Um, I just think he didn't want to put the railroad in there. If you look really closely, you can see a little tiny square on the left-hand side, for those of you that are going to look at it, that was the original town site for Colorado Springs. And there are little dots that I think are supposed to represent uh, buildings. Uh But if you go there now, the entire area, of course, is developed. And in fact, it's been developed and redeveloped several times. What was it like to follow these geographers and to go to the exact places that these drawer, the, these artists sat and did their drawings? I'm probably a little weird, but it was really, <laughs> really fun. And it was you and your wife. Too. It was my wife and I were partners finding these places. And after I selected the photos and or the drawings that I was going to use, and I part of the selection was knowing I could get there to these places in a relatively short period of time. But um, we would we would look at topographic maps. We're both geographers, so we have a, a good idea of how maps work and directions and altitudes and those kinds of things. So we would get in a general area, and then we would start looking for the particular angle that we needed to look at. Uh-huh. And and sometimes it took several days to get the precise place. And that brings up one of the, the drawings that we see on the site, uh, Mount Holy Cross right. by artist Thomas Moran. It's beautiful, but you're, during your, your time for ta- photographing it, it just couldn't have been drawn that way. Or it couldn't have been done He that could way. not have sat in a spot and drawn what he drew looking at the Holy Cross yeah. because there's a mountain in between. So he made it up. And there are waterfalls that aren't there. There's and... <laughs> all kinds of stuff that that aren't there. And the, you, to get the photo that I got, I had to climb a, a Notch Mountain and get on get on the west side of Notch Mountain, and that's where the real view of Mount 
Holy Cross is, and that's where the photograph that William Henry Jackson took it from also. So Moran's drawing was not accurate, but as as he admitted himself, he didn't do accuracy. He did the spirit of a place and and how to make it look dramatic. And he freely admitted that he didn't do it accurately. Did the same thing in Yellowstone. And we've posted the Hayden survey sketch and Huber's photos of Holy Cross at cprnews.org. Uh, the drawings from the geographical survey, geological survey rather, are a combination of these scientific sketches and these expressive artistic drawings. Was this survey just about science or, or was it meant to instill a kind of a go west mentality in, in the people that saw these drawings? Well, most of the, most of the people that worked uh, in the survey were were hardcore scientists, uh, explorers. Um, they they were men that re- – and they were all men, by the way. Uh, they were men that really wanted to see what was here and to – to map the resources that could be used by people that came here. Um, Hayden was pretty hard-nosed scientist, although he really liked to do the public kind of thing. The public kind of thing. He, he wanted science to be available to the public. I see. And he actually got vilified quite often because of that. From scientists? From scientists, because back then, scientists were a really elite group, a very, very tiny minority, and they thought that they sort of had the truth and the the sort of normal people did, couldn't really understand. Well, Hayden didn't think that. Hayden did his work to be accessible by everyone. So he was a scientist and very hard-nosed about the science, but he also was a promoter and wanted people to understand things. Briefly... Going to these spots, do you have an affinity for these artists? Do do you feel like they're a part of you now? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and and by the time I got done finding all the spots, it it was like these people were friends of mine, and I could almost read their mind. If if you gave me a photograph or a drawing that they had done, and I knew the general area, I could pretty much figure out where they would do it from because I knew how they thought. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. University of Colorado, Colorado Springs geographer Tom Huber created the website Hayden's Landscapes Revisited. We post a couple of the Hayden survey sketches along with Huber's photos and a link to the website at cprnews.org. Last month, we told you the story behind a new choral work that explores the life and legacy of Matthew Shepard. He was the gay Wyoming college student who was beaten and left for dead in 1998. A choral composer named Craig Hella Johnson wrote the piece for Conspirare. That's the choral group he conducts in Austin, Texas. Here's an early portion that sets the scene in the Wyoming landscape. Johnson remembers wanting to reflect on the tragedy when he first heard about Shepard's death. I knew I needed to respond in some way, is what my heart was telling me, and I wanted to respond musically, but it took many years, actually, before I felt 
uh, ready to do that. It took a long time, and uh, I didn't know what form that expression would take. Conspirare premiered the piece in February and released the recording in September. You can hear the music twice this weekend on CPR Classical. Listen at 1 p.m. on Saturday or on Sunday to hear the full 100-minute piece Considering Matthew Shepard. And that's our show for this Friday. Thanks to our executive editor, Ryan Warner, our managing producer, Rachel Estabrook, producers Anthony Cotton, Andrew Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Stephanie Wolf. Our theme, uh, of course, when you hear it, was written by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend. Within a psyche that